Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon. Just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, this is your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcast. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind listener mail. I am Joe McCormick and my regular co-host Robert Lamb is off work the week I'm recording this. So like last Monday, I'm going to be recording another listener mail episode solo. But never fear, Rob will be rejoining me and we'll have some fresh new episodes for you sometime later this week. Uh, But for today, I'm going to dive right into a few of the messages that you've sent in over the past cycle. Looks like this first one comes from Chris. Chris says, Hey guys, love the show. Something that blew my mind recently has to do with evolution. Here it goes. In the ancient timeline of life on Earth, sharks are older than trees. I always thought of plants as first, but knowing that sharks were swimming around for a hundred million years before there were even trees blew my mind. Thanks, Chris. Chris, uh, yeah, I... I love stuff like this. So to fill in some detail on this claim, I I would say that this statement is true, though it depends a little bit on how strict your definitions of a shark are. 
Um, There's some debate, I guess, about what counts as evidence of the first shark. But for reference, I just looked up the timeline summarized by the Natural History Museum of London. And according to them, there are a few fossil scales that appear to come from shark-like animals dating all the way back to the Ordovician period. So that's 450 million years ago, which is mind-bogglingly old. Uh, The Ordovician is the first geologic period after the Cambrian. And if you remember, uh, we've done episodes on this in the past. The Cambrian is when we first see the explosion in diversity of animal body plans, uh, animal body plans with hard parts that leave fossil traces. And so this is the age of the trilobites, of course, uh, famously, but also these these amazing creatures like Anomalocaris, this undulating soft-bodied predator with a ring-shaped crusher mouth and little uh, face tentacles that look like shrimp. Uh, Anomalocaris actually means uh, uh, anomalous shrimp or weird shrimp. And uh, creatures like Hallucigenia, which is the wandering spike worm. Uh, and so so that's the Cambrian. But then after that, we enter the Ordovician period. And there, we, yes, we do see evidence of scales, but not teeth. But the scales look like they may have belonged to some kind of ancestral shark or creature that, that uh, over time became sharks. So that evidence is, is a maybe. But then by the early Devonian period, about 410 million years ago, there is clear fossil evidence of shark-like teeth from a fish called uh, Doliotus problematicus, which was beginning to show some of the signs of shark-like anatomy, such as in the teeth and the jaw. And there's another early shark from the the Devonian that I was reading about that I, th- I think we don't know much about, but it's called Leonodus, L-E-O-N-O-D-U-S. And the the only thing that uh, I could really find about this one had to do with its teeth. If you get a chance, you should look up the teeth of the Leonotus shark. These creatures were about 400 million years old, and its teeth are not the serrated triangles or or the murder spikes you might think of in, in shark mouth today. These look like uh, well, they look like the devil horns. They look like somebody at a me- metal show. They go, they throw up the devil horns. They're these little Y-shaped forks, which makes me wonder what kind of prey this animal was eating. What, what do you bite with a bunch of little spiky Y-shaped forks? I don't know. But uh, meanwhile, the evolution of trees is also an interesting subject. I, I think the first things we would identify as trees, meaning tall vascular plants on dry land with woody stems... These show up, I think, in the mid to late Devonian period, so maybe around 390 to 380 million years ago, somewhere in that range. And in fact, the proliferation of land plants, including trees, during the mid to late Devonian is one of the hypothesized causes of the big mass extinction event that happened at the end of the Devonian period. Uh, Now, of course, this is not a settled issue. There, There are a bunch of different ideas about what could have caused it? Uh, you know, you have the regular uh, culprits, things like uh, impacts from space or vo- massive volcanic eruptions. Um, but at least one idea that has been advanced is that as the continents were covered in plants and forests during the Devonian, as as the land turned green, suddenly a large amount of the carbon in the atmosphere was removed. Uh, because remember this really weird fact plants, the parts of plants that is not water, 
that is mostly built out of atoms that were originally in the air. So carbon, the carbon in wood in a tree trunk comes from atmospheric CO2 that plants ingest and then they use the energy from sunlight to power uh, the chemical reaction uh, we know as photosynthesis. So it reacts CO2 with water to produce carbohydrates and oxygen as a byproduct. So you have the proliferation of forests that might have removed a bunch of carbon from the atmosphere to cause a sort of anti-greenhouse effect leading to deadly rapid cooling. Uh, but again, there are other possible explanations for the, for the late Devonian extinction, so we don't really know for sure. However, uh, one last cool thing to notice when you put sharks and trees side by side, so it does look like the sharks came first. Uh, but the other thing to notice is that they both appear to have had a sort of flourishing age of diversification and dominance in the period right after the Devonian, which is known as the Carboniferous. So the Carboniferous period lasted from roughly 360 to about 300 million years ago. And it is named after the fact that this is the geologic strata that we first find packed with lots of coal. Carboniferous means coal-carrying or full of coal. And coal is, of course, a form of fossil carbon that came largely from dead plant matter, including trees, uh, especially trees that grew in low-lying wetlands and swamps. So in these vast uh, you know, continents full of low-lying wetlands and, and wet forests and swamps, you'd have plants dying, they fall down, their, their, their uh, carbon content gets fossilized into coal, and then, of course, in the Industrial Revolution, we, we dig that up and that, that turns into the energy that powers uh, the development of modern civilization. But the Carboniferous period is also sometimes called the Golden Age of Sharks, uh, that same article I was looking at by the... Um, by the London Natural History Museum referred to it as the golden age of sharks. There's a great question. Why did sharks thrive in this period? Why this great diversification of sharks? And that's not known for sure. But one idea that I was reading at a, a great website called elasmoresearch.org. That's a shark science website that I think is mostly or entirely authored by a marine biologist named R. Aiden Martin. I was reading on that site the idea that possibly sharks thrived in this period because at the uh, at the late Devonian extinction, another group of marine predators called the placoderms were wiped out. And the placoderms, uh, if you've never seen pictures of them, you should definitely look them up. They're they're great. They were armored fishes, fish uh, fish you would see with like. Uh, plates around their head and sort of plate-like jaws and mouths. Uh, so one good one to look up is called Dunkleosteus, D-U-N-K-L-E-O-S-T-E-U-S, Dunkleosteus. And uh, if you can find an image with a human for scale, or even better, if you can stand next to an arrangement of their armored head plates in a museum, it's a nightmare. I, you know, I would much rather face down a, a great white shark or, I don't know, maybe even a megalodon. It's something about it. It's, it's, it's terrifying and awesome. But, uh, but the idea is that maybe with the competition of these placoderms gone because they were wiped out at the end of the Devonian, maybe then sharks could expand and fill new niches and diversify. So anyway, thanks for kicking this off, Chris. But I wanted to, to give you another one. So yes, it appears sharks are older than trees. But did you know that mammals are older than bees? 
as with the previous case, uh, there's some debate about where, where you should start, you know, wh- at what point on the, the lineage you should uh, say, okay, now these are mammals, because, of course, mammals are part of a lineage going back to the synapsids that lived even before the dinosaurs, you know, the dimetrodon. So, again, you, you could debate about the where the best place to put their beginning is, but – Small, furry, sort of rodent-ish critters that we would probably recognize as mammals existed during the reign of dinosaurs with a number of fossils from the Jurassic period uh, between about 150 and 200 million years ago. Meanwhile, bees pop up later, I think closer to 130 million years ago. Anyway, thank you, Chris. Okay, this next message comes from Stephen, and it's in response to the series we did on Thirst. Stephen says, Dear Joe and Rob, uh, as a recent microbiology graduate, I was delighted when you started talking about rabies, the horsehair worm, and their relationships with their host's thirst. Uh, Now, remember, this was in the context of us talking about ways that uh, disease-causing pathogens and, and parasites will alter the host behavior in order to help themselves spread or, or reach another part of their, their life cycle. So in the same way that a respiratory infection will co- make you cough and sneeze and spit more of the, the germs onto other people to, to, to spread it around faster, the rabies virus causes a series of behavioral modifications that, uh, that help it spread through bites. So you get bitten by an animal with rabies, um, and the the infected saliva puts some of the virus into your muscle tissue. It spreads to the nervous system. Uh, that that is facilitated by the fact that rabies tends to cause a kind of uh, confusion, irritability, uh, aggression in its later stages, and that it makes it hard for the host to swallow. So it can't the 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 person or or animal that's infected has difficulty or even finds it impossible to drink water uh, and thus can't wash all this infectious saliva out of its mouth. So each bite is is supercharged as a vector of new infection. Uh, but Stephen goes on to say, I thought I would add to the conversation with another interesting parasite that hijacks our need for water. The guinea worm is a parasitic worm whose life cycle depends on close proximity to water. As larvae, they spend their developmental years in the stomachs of aquatic copepods that try to eat them. It isn't until they're consumed by larger animals, e.g. humans, that they can bust through our stomach lining and develop into adulthood while taking residence just under our skin. However, once the adult worm has set up camp under our skin, how does it get larvae back out into the world to begin the cycle again? If I remember correctly, the best cure for this disease is a simple stick with a notch at the end. The worm's tail is inserted in the notch and spooled out of the patient, much like a noodle being twirled into a fork. Of course, one can use a coffee filter to remove copepods from drinking water, preventing infection altogether. Uh, Thanks for making such an informative and entertaining podcast. Sincerely, Stephen. P.S. Rob is right. Rabies is effectively 100% fatal if not vaccinated against before symptoms come on. However, there is one case of rabies being cured by a procedure called the Milwaukee Protocol. It seemed to have been a fluke, though, but it's an interesting enough topic to read about when you get the time. Uh, Well, Stephen, thank you for the message. I actually did look into this, into the Milwaukee Protocol, and I found an explanation in a paper 
called Failure of the Milwaukee Protocol in a Child with Rabies, published in Clinical Infectious Diseases in 2011 by Angela Aramburo et al. So this paper is looking at rabies encephalitis. And this is the phase of rabies infection where the virus has reached the central nervous system. Uh, Now, remember, the normal course is that you're probably bitten by an infected animal, say, somewhere in the body, maybe on the hand, and then viral particles from the saliva of that animal get into your muscle tissue. They infect nerve cells, and then they climb gradually up the nerve pathways until they finally reach the spinal cord in the brain. Now, remember that rabies typically has a long incubation period. There can potentially be months between the initial exposure and the onset of symptoms with encephalitis. Uh, Rabies encephalitis may, in fact, be one of the worst and most deadly diseases you could imagine, but it is pretty much entirely preventable if you seek treatment immediately after you get bitten or otherwise exposed. And the treatment is referred to in the literature as post-exposure prophylaxis, or PEP. And in fact, we've got some more uh, listener mail coming up in a bit with uh, direct experience with PEP. But anyway, the authors of this paper from 2011 write that before 2004, there were only five documented cases of anyone ever surviving rabies encephalitis, and all five of them were people who received some form of PEP, though they ended up reaching the encephalitis phase because the prophylaxis was maybe incomplete or late. But in the year 2004, some doctors reported the first-ever survival of rabies encephalitis without any PEP. This was in a child who had received what they called the Milwaukee Protocol, which is a combination uh, that they describe uh, the following way. They say it's, quote, therapeutic coma, antiviral therapy, cerebral vasospasm management, and avoidance of immunization. Now, unfortunately, it looks to me like attempts to reproduce this outcome in other patients have all failed, uh, including in the case documented in this 2011 paper. They tried the Milwaukee Protocol. It didn't work. So it's possible that, as Stephen says, uh, the time it it looked like it worked in 2004 was some kind of outlier or some kind of fluke and and not a demonstration of any underlying usefulness in the therapy. Um, And I've actually seen uh, at least one more recent paper just discouraging its use altogether. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Rob, as the uh, the local host with allergies here, they sent you some of their nasal spray to treat your allergies. What was your experience like? Yeah, that's right. I always wrestle with the pollen a bit when it rolls in during the spring. So they sent me the little uh, nasal spray. I tried out the product and yeah, it sure did help me get on top of my symptoms for the day. And it's so fast acting. Uh, it was already kicking in before I left the house. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It's the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes, while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription-strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to AstaproAllergy.com for a discount so you can get Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O Allergy.com. Astapro and go. Use this directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. 
eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. Having a one-line plan means you only need you to save. No estranged roommates, exes, cousins twice removed, or AI-powered humanoid robots needed. And because $25 a month really means $25 a month, you can call, text, stream, whatever, as much as you want without worrying about getting dinged at the end of the month. No hidden fees, no surprises. No, really. It's like the old saying goes, you can't judge a book by its cover, but you can judge a company by its name. So spread the word. Tell all your friends there's a wireless company out there with transparency in their name, and they're called Visible. Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. We've got another message uh, from Nate concerning treatment for rabies, and it goes like this. Robert and Joe, love the show. I was listening to your episodes on Thirst and thought I'd share my experience with the rabies vaccine. Back in 2018, I had contact with a bat that found its way into my condo. I got it out of my place and wasn't too worried about it until my friend described how terrible rabies really is. I'm relatively certain that I wasn't bitten, but I went to the doctor anyway. 
The doctor decided to give me the vaccine to be cautious. The vaccine consisted of one shot in each arm and one shot in each thigh, followed by three more follow-up visits with one shot in the arm. The first few days after the initial dose, I started to feel some flu-like symptoms. Flu-like symptoms also happened to be the early signs of rabies. At that time, I wasn't aware that vaccine side effects are relatively common, so that resulted in a pretty stressful couple of days. However, after the side effects went away, everything was good. Then my bill arrived for the vaccine. The pre-insurance cost listed on the bill was $37,000. It was so unbelievable that seven shots could be listed anywhere near that price. Luckily, my insurance covered most of it, but I still ended up paying about $1,700 for the vaccines. I'm sure this pales in comparison with some other drugs, such as uh, treatments for cancer and HIV and so forth, but it was pretty mind-blowing how expensive it was. It's not the wildest story, but just thought I'd share. Uh, You guys have a great show. Thanks for all the entertainment over the last few years. Nate. Well, Nate, uh, I'm I'm glad to hear you're all right now. I'm I'm very glad in any case that you didn't get rabies encephalitis, and uh, and obviously it's good that you had health insurance. But that that is an astonishing bill. I uh, I actually looked into this topic a bit, and I found an article exploring exactly this question, like why is rabies prophylaxis so expensive, and why does the cost of it vary so much? So. Uh, This was an article called Why a Simple Life-Saving Rabies Shot Can Cost $10,000 in America, published in Vox in 2018 by the healthcare reporter Sarah Cliff. I think she's at the New York Times now, but uh, I've read a number of her articles about health care in the U.S., and uh, and, and they're good. Uh, But in in this article, so the the background is that apparently there, there are just a lot of cases in the U.S. where people end up in medical debt after a possible rabies exposure. And the article starts with the story of a college student who literally had a bat fly into her mouth while she was trying to shoo it out of her apartment. Uh, So she goes to an urgent care and there they uh, describes what happened. They refer her to an emergency room for treatment. Uh, This was somewhere in New Hampshire. And then in the end, the bills she got for the full treatment was over $6,000. And somehow this is on the low end of the cost range for for rabies PEP in the United States. Uh, The article claims that many bills are in the range of $10,000, which of course is enormous, but obviously nowhere near your uh, pre-insurance bill of $37,000. So I, I really don't know. What makes the the difference in your case, especially since U.S. healthcare costs are often rather opaque? Um, but according to Cliff, the main itemized cost of these treatments is usually a drug called uh, immunoglobulin, which is designed to slow the spread of the rabies virus in its progression toward the central nervous system, which gives the body time to learn from the vaccine and fight the infection. And uh, immunoglobulin is allegedly expensive to produce because it has to be manufactured using human blood, which has to be pre-screened for disease. So I guess it's a complicated process. Uh, But there are other major expenses for rabies treatment, uh, sometimes because you have to go for multiple follow-up visits, and so there can be these hospital facility fees which get charged to people for showing up in the emergency room or at the clinic multiple times. But based on what this article describes, it, it just seems like, you know, it's a situation where the patient is kind of in a bind. Like, if you have potentially been exposed to rabies, you have to get the treatment. You really need these vaccines because they're extremely effective and untreated rabies is basically a hundred percent fatal. So you can't afford to just roll the dice and hope you won't get it. 
Uh, so it seems like drug manufacturers here have a lot of leeway in what they can charge uh, and still sell plenty of the drugs. So apparently the same drug can have wildly different prices depending on where you get it. Uh, Cliff's article compares costs of identical rabies drugs in the U.S. and other countries, and the ones in the U.S. are sometimes like six times more than what the same drug costs in the U.K., though obviously in the U.K., uh, there's another difference, which is the the government will cover the direct cost of the drug rather than the patient. Um, but anyway, to come back on this, though, that is a pretty unpleasant state of affairs that you can end up with like a $10,000 bill there. Uh, you shouldn't let that discourage you from seeking treatment if you think you might have been exposed to rabies because, again, untreated rabies always ends in death and it's a horrible death. So if you think it's possible, you got to get to a doctor as soon as you can. But anyway, this whole story reminded me of something else I was reading about recently, which is a totally different but complementary approach to fighting the uh, the impact of rabies on on uh, on human society. And th- this intervention is attempting to intervene before infection occurs by vaccinating wild animals against rabies. So in the United States, most people who are exposed to the rabies virus apparently get it from domestic animals like cats and dogs, which in turn get infected through encounters with wild animals like raccoons, skunks, bats, coyotes, and foxes. So at any given time, the vast majority of disease carriers are not humans or domestic animals, but wild animals. Um, And so if you could cut down on the rates of infection among wild animals, that would downstream cut down on the rates of infection and exposure uh, among domestic animals and humans. So I was reading about a series of programs by the U.S. Department of Agriculture, Animal and Plant Health Inspection Service, Wildlife Services, that's a lot of words, uh, to essentially seed the wilderness with bait containing oral rabies vaccine. Uh, and uh, note that this type of vaccine is not nearly as expensive as the the, the full human PEP course. Uh, But to read from the USDA website on this uh, program, quote, oral rabies vaccination or ORV uh, bait is distributed to wildlife in targeted areas. This edible bait consists of a sachet or plastic packet containing the uh, Reboral VRG rabies vaccine. To make the bait attractive to wildlife, the sachets containing the vaccine are sprinkled with fish meal coating or encased inside hard fish meal polymer blocks about the size of a matchbox. Each year, uh, WS, uh, I guess that's Wildlife Services, and cooperators distribute about 6.5 million baits in selected states to create a zone where raccoon rabies can be contained. And I think they've been doing programs like this since the 90s. They claim that for every dollar spent uh, on the wild ORV program, an estimate of somewhere between $4 and $13 are saved in costs associated with rabies transmission into, into humans and domestic animals down the line. So that sounds like a great intervention. Okay, one last response to our episodes on thirst. This one comes from Kenny. And he says, hi, Rob and Joe, I really enjoyed the first two episodes on thirst. I particularly like the discussion around the neural and endocrine systems the body uses to maintain the osmolarity of our blood. Since you only had time to touch on this, I thought I would write in about the mechanism by which the kidneys help to regulate blood volume and osmotic concentration. I know it's an odd thing to find mind-blowing, but it's one of those topics I remember most clearly from my biomedical science degree in the late 90s. 
Each kidney contains about a million structures called nephrons. The initial elements of the nephron filter the blood, then reabsorb everything you want to keep, like glucose, amino acids, and much of the water. The clever part happens when the filtrate enters a structure called the loop of Henle and descends into the renal medulla deep within the kidney. The function of the loop is to create an osmolarity gradient within the surrounding interstitial tissue. It does this through the active transport of sodium chloride, meaning salt, and water. The osmotic concentration of blood is about 300 milliosmoles per liter, but the interstitial fluid in the medulla is extremely hypertonic, so very salty, and can be as high as 1200 milliosmoles per liter. Once through the ascending arm of the loop, the filtrate is again extremely dilute and can have an osmotic concentration as low as 70 to 100 when it enters the collecting duct. This duct passes straight down through the osmolarity gradient. If you are dehydrated, then antidiuretic hormone acts upon the collecting duct to make it permeable to water. As the filtrate descends through the osmolality gradient, more and more water diffuses through the vessel walls by osmosis, pulled through by the higher concentration of salts in the surrounding tissue. The more dehydrated you are, the more permeable the collecting duct, and the more concentrated the resulting urine. So, despite the extreme tonicity of our most concentrated urine, it is in fact slightly hypotonic compared to the interstitial environment it passed through. In fact, the collecting duct is permeable to urea, which, uh, some of which diffuses out of the duct's lower reaches and further increases the osmolarity of the surrounding fluid. On the other hand, if you've drunk so much water that you squelch when you walk, ADH is almost absent, and uh, that's antidiuretic hormone. ADH is almost absent, and the collecting duct becomes almost impermeable to water, which means that the filtrate will pass straight through as extremely dilute, almost colorless urine. The nature of this structure means that there is a hard limit to how concentrated humans can make their urine. We're not as good at retaining water as mammals more adapted to arid conditions. A camel has large numbers of long loops of Henle, which allows it to maintain a hypertonic environment in its renal medulla, with a concentration of more than double that of a human. This means that the camel can produce exceptionally concentrated urine and retain water for longer. I was also fascinated by your discussion on the taste of water. I live in Scotland, famous for rain, mountains, and deep locks. The water from our taps is so good, but we are rightly appalled by the sorry state of the stuff that comes out of the taps south of the border, I guess in England. My aunt lives in the south of England, where the geology is completely different, and I used to dread the tap water down there. It didn't exactly taste of farts, but it's deeply unpleasant, and I never found it refreshing at all. The high levels of calcium and magnesium in the water, especially around London, where the water is very hard indeed, mean that dishwashers and washing machines can end up with serious limescale buildups. Anyway, that's more than enough from me. Thanks for all you do, Kenny. Uh, and then Kenny also includes a little cartoon uh, mocking the taste of English tap water. Uh, well, Kenny, thank you for the message, uh, the the interesting uh, anatomical notes. But also, yeah, I traveled to England with uh, my wife, Rachel, a few years back, and it was a great trip. Uh, England is a wonderful country with many treasures. But yes, I, I distinctly remember the tap water tasted so wrong. It It was like it had been steeped in a barrel full of 
chalk and discarded latex gloves. Uh, but no disrespect to England. Uh, you know, London is a place of, of fractal delights. And, and while we were there, we also went down to the Jurassic Coast and uh, walked around with the, the wild ammonite fossils, um, which is just great. And one of my favorite feelings is is finding a fossil in its original exposure setting in the outdoors before somebody removes it to a collection or a museum. Uh, and if you've never done that, the Jurassic Coast is great. It's got ammonites and, and things all over there. But I, I also recommend... Uh, I've mentioned this on the show before, but the the hikes they offer to the trilobite beds of the the Burgess Shale in the Canadian Rockies. That's one of my all-time favorite excursions. Uh, just magical. Anyway, I think that is going to be it for today's episode of Listener Mail, but we will be back to talk to you again soon. Uh, hey, if you're new to the show, once again, this is the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast. This is Listener Mail, which we do every Monday, uh, but we do core science and culture episodes on Tuesdays and Thursdays. We do short form episodes on Wednesdays, and then on Fridays, Rob and I usually do a casual episode that we call Weird House Cinema, where we just talk about a weird movie, usually a, a monster movie or something from one of the genres. Uh, if you're not subscribed, uh, you can find us wherever you get your podcast. Just look up the Stuff to Blow Your Mind feed or go to stufftoblowyourmind.com. Big thanks, as always, to our wonderful audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us to maybe have your message featured on a future listener mail episode or uh, to suggest a topic for the show for one of our core episodes or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts are wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon. Just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need— eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. 
Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender.